Welcome to the Grace Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to become a community of grace and peace for the good of our city and the fame of Jesus. Every Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m., we gather together at the Malco Theater in Collierville, Tennessee, to be encouraged and strengthened in our faith by worshiping God through music, scripture, and a message for our lives. So if you're looking for a church home where you can feel loved and accepted as part of God's family, then come and join us at Grace Hill Church. You can visit our website at gracehill901.com for more information about our services and what we have planned for the upcoming weeks. We look forward to connecting with you. Now here's this week's message. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complained that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, Even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you, and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. I've looked at that painting now for um, what 
feels like hours as well, just <clears throat> putting the creative package for the sermon series together and even still just sitting over there seeing it so blown up on that screen. <clears throat> I got so distracted, I lost my place and didn't get my, you know, didn't get things set up in time uh, down here. <clears throat> it's a pretty powerful image to think that a, that a painting that was painted over 400 years ago can, can, can have an impact on our, on our soul, you know, that, that can have that kind of uh, impact to even potentially, like Henry Nouwen talked about it, it deeply affected. It was a, a multi-year spiritual journey uh, that impacted his life. I have been just moved. You, go ahead and put that painting back up on the picture, uh, up on the screen. I, I've, I've been so moved by the the way that the, the father's hands kind of come around and, and hold the, the son. And I was noticing um, Friday how, how worn the son's shoes were, that on his, uh, what would be his right foot, that the back of the heel of the sole of his shoe is just, it's completely worn off. His head is shaven because no doubt he became probably lice infected and he had no choice but to shave his head down and, and, and the, the rawness of what Rembrandt painted for us to really um, get an, an idea of what this moment, this parable <clears throat> that Jesus told in this painting that Rembrandt painted uh, is pretty powerful. But what has really struck me is the sense of belonging and grace that this younger brother no doubt found in the embrace of the father. In the moment of his deepest shame and his deepest brokenness, he finds himself experiencing the greatest grace and the deepest sense of belonging he may have ever experienced in his life. Henry Nouwen described this, this moment uh, in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, uh, as a homecoming. And it was a way for him too, he, he felt like he had come home uh, as he viewed this painting and saw himself in the story. And each week, maybe you're not a, an, an, a creative person, maybe you're not a visual person, but each week we're gonna do the same exercise because not that the painting itself is all that important, but I do think that it helps us visualize this moment and makes something that is abstract maybe be a little bit more concrete for us because we've all had those moments of homecoming. We've all had those moments where we needed rescue. We needed to find grace. We needed to find belonging after brokenness. And that's what this series is gonna be about. Uh, this series is either going to be uh, an opportunity for you to come home and, and find that maybe for the first time in your life or throughout this series, maybe it's going to be an opportunity for you to be thankful for the homecoming that you have experienced for the grace and the belonging that you have found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And it's in these verses we see a powerful snapshot of the ministry of Jesus. A ministry that this, this there's so much here in this text. It, it is a ministry that drew both outsiders and insiders. Those who had rebelled and those who thought they were not rebelling, but they were in fact. And these sinners found hope and grace 
in the teachings of Jesus while the Pharisees and the religious leaders simply used these moments as an opportunity to question his association with those they simply deemed unworthy. And throughout the gospels, those kind of two extremes really create a lot of tension in these parables. And maybe no more climactic than here in Luke chapter 15. There's approximately about 40 parables that we have recorded in the gospels. And Jesus used this uh, way of storytelling as a method to get across tension. He used it as a way to get across truth. He used it as a way to illustrate the, the radical profound heart that our father had for those who were lost, searching, hurting, and broken. And he used it as a way to kind of highlight, almost in a way to hold up a mirror to those who thought they had no need for God, who, who thought that their works, that thought, thought that their effort alone was all that was needed. And Jesus used parables many times as a way to hold that up to a mirror to those people and try to reveal to them just how much in need of grace they actually were. And throughout the parables, in, in, in teaching in this way, throughout these parables, Jesus reveals the story of our lives, the story that we all have and that we are all on a journey of, of trying to find grace and trying to find a sense of belonging. And what Jesus will do time and time again is he will point to the fact that grace and belonging can best be found in the arms of the Father. Grace and belonging can be found best in the arms of the Father. So here's kind of the, the question that I want us to just wrestle through today is this, is, is that we're all in need of grace and we're all in need of belonging. I mean, there's, there's studies being done right now, kind of post-pandemic studies of this, this. I heard a podcast on it the other day, the, epic, the, the epidemic of loneliness in our culture. We are all in need of grace. We are all in need of belonging. The question is, and this is the question for each one of us, is this, is where do we try to find it? Where do we try to find grace and where do we try to find belonging? And this parable, the parable of the lost sons, is the way that many scholars actually believe it should be sort of portrayed because they were both lost. This, this parable is gonna show two types of people who are both trying to find satisfaction. They're both trying to find meaning and purpose and joy, grace, and belonging in things outside of the embrace of the Father. And this, this story is a story. It is an invitation to come as a homecoming back to the embrace of the Father. Find grace and find belonging in him and him alone. Now, we need to understand today what we're going to do is we're really going to look at the context of this parable. Because we have to understand the context of what of the audience of who Jesus is talking to because if it many times it's funny because even in trying to study for this message there was so few um there's, there's not a whole lot of ink that's been used to talk about these first two verses in Luke chapter 15, but it's so important because the rest of the chapter really only makes sense if you understand what's happening at the beginning. The context there is that Jesus is teaching to 
um, and hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. Uh, he is hanging out with people who were uh, viewed less than favorably in the community and the society, and certainly hanging out with people who were viewed less than favorable by the religious leaders and the Pharisees at the time. But see, here's what's interesting about this parable is that Jesus is going to tell this parable because the older brother in the parable represents the heart of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. All these years, I have slaved away for you. I've done everything you've asked me to do. And I feel that I deserve something that you've not given me. That's the heart of the the Pharisees. So the younger brother here represents that group that Jesus is encountering. But the younger son, the younger brother, represents these sinners and tax collectors, people who were trying to find peace and grace and belonging and satisfaction in life, but they were doing it in all the wrong ways as well. The difference is, and this is why Jesus is telling this parable here, is that the sinners and the tax collectors were actually coming and being with Jesus. While the Pharisees were doing nothing but standing off in the distance in the shadows, rebuking him and criticizing him, just like the younger brother. And Jesus had similar encounters with these type of mindsets. If you go with me to Luke chapter 5, we see this very, very, very clearly um, in Luke chapter five. Uh, This is the calling of Levi. It says here in Luke chapter five, starting in verse 29, later Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Uh, Levi was a tax collector. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with him, but the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law, maybe some of the exact same people in Luke 15, complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Now you remember in our Navigating Chaos series, we always get into trouble if we move away from an I-thou relationship and move to an I-it relationship. And see, the Pharisees here have moved from an I-thou. They are in an I-it relationship. They view this group of people that Jesus is hanging out with as a label and nothing more. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And I love Jesus, his little um, kind of low key, uh, his kind of low key uh, condescending statement here. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. And you say, well, why, why did the Pharisees and the religious leaders care that much? Well, remember, Jesus at this point in his ministry was very much known as a teacher. He was very much known as a rabbi. He had called disciples to follow him, to follow his way. And so in many ways, he was intertwined with kind of the religious orbit of the day. And the Pharisees and these religious leaders felt like they had a brand to protect. And Diane Chin, a commentator and scholar, she gives us a little bit of a kind of a contextual understanding of what is is going on, like why this was such a big deal to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. She says this, 
From the point of view of the religious elite, Jesus's association with tax collectors and sinners is a breach of purity laws. He ignores the decorum of conventional boundaries by sharing table with the wrong crowd. This kind of behavior is unbecoming of a respected teacher. And I think there's, there's, three, um, there's three actions here. There's three postures or maybe even just, I don't know, verbs that Jesus is, is demonstrating here that has really caused these religious leaders and Pharisees to kind of be in an uproar. Why, you know, why they're coming to him, yeah, he's breaking these purity laws, but there's some things here that Jesus is doing specifically that is, that's got them really worked up and riled up. The first one is this, he's teaching them. If you kind of think about it, like Jesus has put himself in the posture of teaching these tax collectors and sinners, this scum as the Pharisees and religious leaders referred to him. He's teaching them the ways of God. The, the Pharisees and the tax collectors may not realize it yet, but, but he's teaching them the way of Jesus, that if you're gonna come and follow Jesus, this is the way of life of doing that. This is what a disciple of Jesus, someone who's following him, this is what that looks like in their life. So they were, they were worked up that the poor and the, the scum, as they thought it, or the greedy rich of the tax collectors were hearing the ways of God. Societal norms at the time, they really shouldn't have had a lot of access to that, and yet Jesus has invited them in. But, but taking it kind of, kind of zeroing in a little bit more, Luke tells us that Jesus was associating with them. So this is not just Jesus standing on a hillside as we see like in Matthew chapter five where he's got the multitudes there and he's gonna teach them the Sermon on the Mount, this ethic of the kingdom of God. No, Jesus is actually associating with them. He knows them by name. He knows their story, probably many of them. He has become potentially friends with them. He might know their, their spouse and their children and who they are. Jesus has put his life into their world, just like we talked about again in the Navigating Chaos series. This, this incarnational love of Jesus, we get a glimpse that Jesus is actually doing that here with tax collectors and sinners, scum, as the religious leaders referred to them. He has stepped into their world to love them and care for them. But the last word that we get here in Luke chapter 15 that, that has kind of worked up these religious leaders and Pharisees is this, the idea, Luke tells us, that he's eating with them. Now, we don't think much in our culture today about sharing a meal, grabbing lunch with a friend, a coworker, uh, day dating your spouse, you know, whatever it may be, uh, going Friday night out with a, a few friends and hanging out, whatever. We, we don't think much about it. It's fun and we enjoy it. And some of you, you love having people come over to your house, but first century context, eating, sharing a meal was, a, was, a, was, was an incredible sign of hospitality. It was an incredible sign of friendship and connection and relationship. And Jesus is not only kind of macro teaching them, he's not only associating with them where he's maybe on a first name basis with them and he knows their story. He, he is taking time out of his life. And part of his ministry is eating with this 
group of people that the religious leaders and tax collectors refer to as scum. Now, I'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks, but, but newsflash, the older brother had a similar vibe with the younger brother. He didn't even call him when my brother returns. He said, when this son of yours, he's disassociating himself with any type of familiar intimacy at all that he could have. And these religious leaders have done the same thing. They just label them. It's an I-it view of a relationship. This is who they are. And they cannot believe that someone who considers himself a religious teacher, a rabbi, would teach this group of people, certainly associate with this group of people. And why in the world would he share a meal with them? Would he would actually sit and eat with them. It, it, it is beyond their understanding. But, but this, was not, this is not just a, a one-time kind of thing here for Jesus. We get this picture many times. No doubt, I'm sure, that Jesus had this reputation for this now. I mean, just a couple of chapters later, we see in Luke 19, Jesus called the calling of Zacchaeus, hated, hated individual, tax collector, traitor to his own countrymen, worked for the government, the Roman government, and essentially stole from his people as he collected the taxes for the, the, the Roman uh, government. We see this uh, when Jesus goes and he spends time with the woman at the well. We see this as Jesus is, is meeting with people, associating himself with people so closely that he knows that they're hungry. They're so poor, they don't have money to bring food in. And so Jesus provides food for them. We see this with Jesus' encounter that he has with those who are diseased and sick. And many times, yes, we do, sometimes just due to proximity, Jesus will speak the word or to demonstrate his power, he'll speak the word and they'll be healed. But many times, Jesus is so close to those who are physically so broken and diseased, their bodies are riddled with disease, that Jesus actually gets to them and touches them. And think about the, the story that we get of Jesus being anointed by the, the sinful woman. There's this outcry about the, the, the gift that has been given, this, this anointing that she has done. <coughs> and Judas uh, proclaims that this money should have been, uh, that could have been sold and given to the poor. Jesus had a reputation for associating himself, teaching people, and eating with people who were marginalized by the broader community. And I'll tell you, the, the, the hardest part about this message for me, I, I think it's easy to hold up the grace of Jesus and say, I mean, we, we, we need to find our, our, our grace. We need, to, we, we need to find grace. We need to find belonging in Jesus. I think it's easy to hold up the religious pride of the Pharisees and the, and the, and the religious leaders and, and show how they were just as in need of grace as much as these sinners and tax collectors that they viewed so poorly. 
I, I think the hardest part for me about this text and this message is that if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, if I'm gonna live my life in the way of Jesus and, and have it look like Jesus as best as I know how, as the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding me, I have to want my life to be marked in this same way. Like who, who would, think about it this way, who would be the people that you would have to eat with, that you would have to find yourself in association with, to disciple, to teach them? Who, who are the kind of people that you would have to be in that level of proximity to, that need grace and need to find belonging? Who are those people that would in turn potentially call your reputation and character into question just by trying to live the way of Jesus out with them? That was a really hard thing for me to process as, I'm, as, as I worked through this. I think it's hard to apply when we, I love, I was sharing with a pastor friend this week about our vision. He said, man, tell me about your, tell me about your church. We're, we're trying to build a relationship with one another and just get to know one another. And, and he said, man, tell me about your church. What's like the, the, the ethos of your church? And I was saying, man, everything really for us flows out of our vision. And he said, tell me what that is. And I said, it's to become a community of grace and peace for the good of our city and the fame of Jesus. And he goes, man, I got vision envy. That's exactly what he said. He said, man, I got vision envy, man. That's, that's amazing. And, and think about trying to become a community of grace and peace where our life would be potentially marked by this. That the people that we might disciple, associate, and, and eat with would potentially get our character, our reputation, our mission called into question because the way that society views those people is so negative. This is the question I ask myself a lot of times. Who are the modern day sinners and tax collectors? Who are the modern day groups of people that, let me just say it this way, that the religious, the larger religious community, they may not ever utter it this way, but they would say is scum. Undeserving of the grace of Jesus. I want my, my life to be marked in this way that those are the people, that those are the people that, that need grace and belonging. And because I have found grace and belonging in the embrace and the arms of the Father, I wanna do everything I can. It's just all week long, I was wrestling with this. I wanna do everything I can. Character and reputation potentially on the line to be in proximity to those people. Who would those people be? I hear a lot of negativity towards certain groups of people in this world right now. There's a lot of negativity towards certain groups of people as it relates to human sexuality. There's a lot of negativity towards certain groups of people as it relates to politics. There's a lot of negativity towards certain groups of people As it relates to, this morning I, I wore a shirt for setup. I, I always wear a shirt and change and everything. And I wore a shirt this morning that, 
It said, uh, Memphis welcomes refugees. And it was when we were uh, uh, part of a project a few years ago when some large group of uh, Afghan refugees had, had been uh, kind of assigned to come to Memphis. And there was just, the needs were just tremendous. And, and our church stepped in in such a big, I was reflecting on that this morning, just thinking about the, the carload of stuff. Literally, I, th- I think Jessica, I, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe after the service, but I literally think it was like two carloads of stuff that, that we just gave to these people we'd never met before. And I, I, I will vividly remember, I got that organization, I got a shirt from them. I, I bought the shirt just to kind of sponsor a, their fundraiser they were doing to try to raise money, just to help pay these people's rent and get you know, MLG and W turned on in their, in their home. And I wore that shirt out one day just to run to Lowe's or something, you know, just, just to make a run. And I, and I had somebody just approach me and be so critical towards me about my shirt that I was wearing that just said, Memphis welcomes refugees. And I, I've thought about that many times I've worn that shirt. I've, I've worn it a bunch. I, and I've thought about that time. And, and I just, what if you just scratched out Memphis and said Jesus? Is, is that the heart of Jesus? To welcome those who are, who, who have no place. I, I'm not going to mention her by name because I didn't ask her for permission, but I was so struck this morning. I had to fill out an application for one of the folks in our church who's going to go start doing prison ministry. And I just think to myself, that, that's the heart of Jesus. That's the posture of Jesus. That's the type of people that I think that Jesus would go teach and associate and eat with if he was living and walking among us today. And oh, by the way, the spirit of the church, that is what we do as we carry on the mission of Jesus. And so I, I just... I just want us to wrestle with that before we ever jump into the compare and contrast of the younger brother and the older brother and the irreligious and the religious and all of that. We have to sit for a moment in the context of the story and go, Jesus was hanging out with people was in such close proximity to people that his character and his reputation were being called into question. Who are those people today? And might not we try to consider how we can actually build bridges with people in those communities instead? I think that's the heart of Jesus. I think that's the way of Jesus. And to be honest, our, all of our lives probably fit within one of those two groups of people. We, we, as we hear this, we would either probably identify more with the, the religious and the Pharisees, the people who kind of hold a, a judgmental, um, kind of critical, condescending of the folks around us kind of posture, or we would view ourselves maybe more with the sinners and the tax collectors, the, the people who cannot imagine being loved. They can't imagine finding grace. They can't imagine finding a place and a sense of belonging. All of us probably could, could find, and, and, and maybe our points in our life have been interchangeable. Maybe we've moved from one spot to another spot in our life. 
Maybe we've moved from, from having an attitude of judgmentalism and, and, and being overly critical of people and groups and, and people that we view as, as what Luke 5 says is scum. And then we've had a moment where we've encountered such grace and belonging in Jesus. And, we, and we've moved. Maybe we've had moments where we've gone from being the outcast, the, the sinner, the tax collector type person. And we have found grace and belonging in Jesus. See, the, the challenge is, is that we are all trying to find that at some level in our lives. It could be through pleasure, as we're going to see in the younger brother. It could be through power. That's certainly in the older brother. He felt like he had some level of power over the father and this religious leaders and Pharisees felt like they certainly had some sort of uh, societal place of power. It might be through greed, both groups here, the younger brother and the older brother, the the irreligious and the religious, they had a, a posture of greed in their life. And then it could even be through religion the religion of self, the, the religion of good works, of being trying to just be better than other people. We, we've all experienced or, have ex, or are experiencing those moments in our lives. The challenge is, is that when we begin to try to embrace this in any other way than Jesus, it always fails. It always fails. We always end up, every single time, we, any, any time we try to pursue that outside of the message of the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, it will always fail us. We will always end up like the younger brother, poor in spirit, broke in spirit, which is brokenness, and needing to find our way back home. But you see, Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection has made it where you and I can find our ultimate satisfaction and our ultimate belonging in him. That is the hope that we have in the gospel. That is the message of this parable over and over and over and over again. That is actually through Jesus and what he has accomplished on our behalf that has made it where we can find our satisfaction and find our belonging in him. That we can trade all of those tendencies that we tend to have for rest in him. John 14 The first couple of verses here in John 14, Jesus says this. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Can you just exhale on that for a minute? That the invitation of Jesus is to not let our hearts be troubled. Trust in God, but also trust in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. All my older Gen X's, we're all singing it right now. A big, big house with lots and lots of room. You know, you're all doing it right now in your head. 
If this were not so, I would not have told you. Would I not have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Jesus wants to create a sense of belonging in him so much that he told his disciples and he told us that he's going to prepare a place so that we can be with him. There's nothing else that will satisfy like that. There's no religion. There is no uh, religion of self. There is no pleasure that will sustain in our lives, that will last in our lives the way that Jesus will. And for the religious, Jesus has enabled us to shed all the burden of, of this working and this trying and this burden that we bear of the weight of religion and performance and good deeds. Jesus has enabled us to shed all of that and come and find rest in him. Jesus extends it. He says, my burden is light. Trade that heavy religious burden, the weight of performance, Trade it for the, the yoke of Jesus that is easy and the burden that is light for him. Jesus has made it possible to throw off all of the, the desire for worldly pleasure and power and greed and envy and find joy and satisfaction in him. We learn through the grace and the belonging of Jesus and what the psalmist said that he has tasted and he has seen that the Lord is in fact good. And it is my prayer this morning that you would taste and see that the Lord is good as well. Whether you view yourself as an irreligious heart or you view yourself with a religious heart and it's all about pride and works and ego and just being better than your neighbor. My prayer for you is that you would taste and see that the Lord is good. So each week of the series, the way we're gonna end the message each week of the series, there's a, there's a powerful spiritual practice that the younger brother models for us here. He comes and in a way he confesses to the father. He confesses his brokenness, he confesses his unworthiness. He confesses his need that he has and his desire for forgiveness in the Father. And every week in this series, we're gonna end the message by just kind of taking that posture for just a minute. We're gonna begin each message by kind of gazing into that picture and we're gonna end each message by posturing ourselves and fixing our eyes in confession on the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so I want you just to do that now. Just to, just to maybe get back in that same posture we had early in the day, just, just a, a posture of holding out your hands and a posture of confessing over to Jesus.
Jesus, I thank you for the old hymn that says, come you sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. And I pray today that all of us, the, the ones who feel irreligious and the ones who feel religious, would see our deep need that we are all sinners. We are all poor and needy. We are all weak and wounded. We are all sick and sore. And the only hope we have, the only chance we have in life is to come to the one who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Jesus ready stands to save, full of pity, love and power.